HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, our weekly food news roundup. Fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote an episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. Should you eat the cheese rind? Can you eat the rind? These are like the biggest questions. We'll answer all of your questions about mysterious mushrooms and crazy curds. Plus, we'll give you a sneak listen to the newest season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces for grocery stores last year, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space, and learning the world of CPG and grocery has been a massive learning experience. In my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on everything from production and distribution to legal PR and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today I'm speaking with Jesse Darris, founder and CEO of Darris, a full service brand strategy and communications agency firm. I met Jesse through my friend, his very proud cousin, and it turns out he's a bit of a wonderkind in the branding world. So lucky me. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks. Um, so you've helped companies like Warby Parker, Reformation, Everlane, and Lola, which we're plugging because your wife started. My wife did start it, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, and those are pretty big names. Yeah, I mean, they are now, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> you basically help them figure out how to effectively communicate with their consumers. Correct, yeah. I mean, we've, uh, um, 
I've been incredibly lucky. We've worked with a ton of pretty incredible founders um, and have had the ability to work with them since really soon after they came up with their ideas, which has been really gratifying. So as a kid, were you a product guy? Were you a brand guy? Were you a TV guy? Like I was a political guy. You were a political... As a kid? As a kid. Wait, um, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, yeah, fourth and fifth grader, I was I was into politics. <laughs> Did you run for offices and things and like promise lunchroom I, cookies? I and... lost for oh. four straight years. But in you high kept school, going. But I kept going. I, I have a little bit of grit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my my grandmother um, Lola was uh, oh, wow. a pretty ab- amazing woman, um, and was a big politico and got me into it. I think from the time I was seven, eight, nine years old, I would watch uh, politics with her and uh, and watch. Um, uh, different types of programs, and she got me into reading too. So, when you were that age, who was like your political, like who was your uh, what are they uh, like idol? Oh, John Kennedy. I mean, um, and I read a I read a, a lot of biographies about Kennedy, right, uh, and about Bobby, um, but also became. But um, they were a brand. They were, and I became enamored of the actual process, and so I was reading books. They probably know 12 and 13 year olds should have been reading. Right. Uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail was uh-huh. a pretty amazing That's one. <laughs> and, um, the Boys on the Bus, which is this entire kind of behind the scenes about how communications works, specifically on the 72 campaign, that one. Okay, so that's exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, Debbie Millman feels very strongly about this. Like she talks about it all the time. Like everything that you see and feel a strong connection to, whether you realize it or not, whether you're buying it or consuming it in your body is a brand. Everything. Right. Yes. I mean, uh, and not not even really a close call. I, you, you grow up and you, you watch these people create movements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know how many 13-year-olds, I'm aging myself, stayed home to watch the Clinton inauguration, but I was one of them. Right. And I taped it on VHS and watched it a bunch more times <laughs> after that. But he created this amazing moment. Um, and I remember Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Well, I remember that song, like... That was one it piece, was but his his motto, the campaign slogan was "It's the economy, stupid," which is right. which is amazing, right? Right, and you remember the campaign slogan of the winning campaign over and over and over again, no matter how far back it goes, right? That right. that campaign um, slogan was specifically it, it allowed people to be selfish in a beautiful way, right? It was it was oh the other guy doesn't get it because he's out of touch, he doesn't even know the price of uh, a half gallon of milk, right? And I get it, and and you know you're with stupid, right? Um, <laughs> And I I think that's pretty incredible. It's actually really funny if you put it in today's context. Like, people would not, you know, like that very much. Exactly. (laughs) I guess it's quaint. And yet, like, you know, people would be like, maybe the language. Yeah. But so did you think you wanted to be a politician or did you think you wanted to be a behind the scenes guy building the building the thing for the politician i don't think i ever aspired to be the guy I'd, I, or the or the woman I, i'd rather be the person behind the politician right. um i remember keenly watching the west wing growing up yeah um and i didn't want to be uh martin sheen i wanted to be allison janney totally um i wanted to be bradley whifford i wanted yep. to be the chief of staff or the press secretary or something like that did you ever read the boy who became president no. it's like about a fourth grader <laughs> who actually runs for president and it's actually very appropriate because he wins yeah. and then he's basically like america you have a problem the <laughs> fact that you elected me president but the book is kind of about the guy yeah. behind him who's like 
who just wants someone he can put in the role so that he can like win, you know? That seemed, I don't know what that says about me as a human being, but that seemed really attractive to me to be the person behind the person. You're a kingmaker. I don't know, hardly, but but that was always what I wanted to do. And that was what I chased after I got out of school. Yeah, so is that what you did in college? I did. I I volunteered. The first campaign I ever volunteered on was Tammy Baldwin's first campaign for, uh, for the house. Okay. Um, in 1998, I, I cold called potential donors. Oh, that's what my son's doing right now. <laughs> and then I got incredibly lucky and met this professor. His name's Ken Goldstein. We still keep in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, who was starting something that became the Wisconsin Advertising Project, which, believe it or not, I think it was the first um, project to track political advertising on television. Mm. This was in 1998, 99, 2000. Right. And so my first entree into watching kind of how national press worked was we would code ads um, using all this money from Brookings Institution to tell you, you know, whether they were positive or negative or neutral and what they were about. Right. Um, we could figure out based on the data we were being given how much the ads cost and in what markets they were in. And we would produce reports that became press releases that always ended up on the cover of the New York Times right. because it was the first time anybody had ever tracked TV ad spending. That's very cool. Which is wild. So that was after college? Or that, that was during, during college. college. So... I, I had a job with him for the better part of three years. That's um, so cool. And he uh, uh, he talked me out of going to law school. Right. Um, and I had taken the LSAT and gone through kind of all of that. And much to my parents' chagrin, he introduced me to a handful of people. Uh, and over the Christmas break of my senior year, I went down to Washington and met with a bunch of them. And so you thought you were going to be doing political I was positive that stuff. I would at least try it. Right. Um, and one of the guys that I met with um, actually hired me and gave me my first job. Um, he hired me in January of my senior year of college. And awesome. so oh, I graduated that May. I packed up a Drove car. To DC. My parents dropped me off on some strange stoop <laughs> crying <Right>. oh. <laughs> five days after graduation. And I started my career at a small right. uh, consulting shop. Uh, uh, where I was half executive assistant and half account man. Awesome. Um, which was a lot of fun. And then how did it change? What was the transition from that into branded product? Yep. So I, I spent um, about a year and a half apprenticing there and then worked on a bunch of campaigns uh, back to back. Ended up getting hired by the Carrie Edwards campaign in 2004. Um, I was, Your life would have been very different had it, he won. It would have been quite different. Wow. Um we lost. I had been lucky. Warby Parker <laughs> is Warby Parker. Know how lucky they are that John Kerry lost. I think I'm lucky that Warby Parker exists. But um, but the uh, it's mutually <laughs> right. I uh, um, I was the state spokesman in the smallest battleground state. I mean, I was a 24 right. year old kid. Um, I came back to New York. Uh, I uh, went to go work for a guy named Ken Sunshine. That's his real name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Kenny had a small, but really well-known, uh, PR shop in New York. Um, I did a lot of local politics and crisis work. I tried my hand at sports and entertainment and all of these other things. Um, and I just happened to be here as the technology movement, uh, took off. Right. Um, I met, uh, the founders of Thrillist right as they were getting off the ground and they hired me out of Sunshine to do, uh, uh, their PR. Cool. And then I got a phone call in the fall of 2008 from Neil Blumenthal. Mm-hmm. Um, who I knew through mutual friends from growing up, uh, and he had this idea to sell glasses online um, that he had come up with with a few friends. Um, and that eventually became Warby Parker. I, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. That's so cool. So that was really, I mean, so you 
you really got lucky. I mean, in yes. the sense that like your first gig as your own gig was a big one. Not even that. I So I didn't search out consumer brands right. at all. Right. Um, it wasn't what I was doing. It wasn't what I was, I, I had trained at at all. Um, you know, Neil and I had a series of conversations and I, I met with the, with the other guys as well. Um, and then they came in to try to hire us and I talked them out of it. Um, <laughs> and they hired another firm uh, to help them with fashion press. Right. Um, and they launched the business and, and it was going in incredibly well. And Neil called me one day to try to hire me to help with tech and, and some other things they needed help with. Right. And so I said no again. Um, and then he came back a third time and I, I said yes to the third time. Right. Um, and so literally I tried to say no. Um, and I was still at Sunshine at this point. And right. so the business launched in 2010. Um, I didn't get the idea to start Daris until 2012. Right. Um, okay. And it was essentially, you know, th- a three part process in my head. It was, uh, Warby Parker looks like it might be successful. Right. Um, I, I thought it was incredibly novel the way they had uh, started to speak to customers and speak with them. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think there were firms that could walk and chew gum that could speak to consumers and then also speak to brand. And, and now it's and funny that press. everyone has to. Yeah. Like um, that's like, as they say, table stakes now or whatever. Right. I certainly thought it would be. Uh, you right. Know, it didn't. It struck me as odd that it, that. That you had to hire two firms. Um, yeah. And, you know, it costs more, and, and firms don't necessarily like to play nice in the same sandbox. Right. And uh, they speak different languages. It's, I thought it should be integrated pretty simply. So how did you figure out, I mean, how did you figure out what to do for Warby? <laughs> I, di- I mean, I didn't. That's the thing. I, and I, I don't, I won't begin to take, you know, credit for the genius of the guys. What ended up happening is I found myself in these rooms when I was, you know, just helping them with some tech stuff and, and, and some of the buy a pair, give a pair stuff. Um, and the rooms were incredible. You know, yeah. it was it was Neil and Dave and uh, and Anthony Sperduti from Partners in Spade and uh, and Andy Spade as well. And mm-hmm. um, and I, I didn't know enough to be scared. Right. Um, which That's was really good. <laughs> oh, the days when I didn't know enough to be scared. Yeah. That was like the best. And so I won't pretend to have added that much to Warby. I was there right. and I, I helped execute the vision that they had. Um, but really I was learning the entire time and I've been learning the entire, like the entirety of the time, but, um, but that really was what that experience was. But there is, there is a thread, right? I mean, there's, it's, someone came on and it was Taryn and she Mm -hmm. had wanted to be a stand up comic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but there's a thread. And then Scott came on last week and he wanted to do something that, it, it relates, you know, yeah. I mean, oh, you're, the same you're fourth grade loving the, the idea of these brothers becoming this American icon mm-hmm. is the same as what you're doing now. So there was something in you, right? When you were in the room, I'm sure you were learning a lot and I'm not saying you're solely responsible for Warby Parker, but clearly you were good at it. Like you were good at. To your point, it had very specific links to politics that I now see that I didn't see then. Right. Right. So um, in my mind, it was about uh, as a brand defining yourself in short, positive, highly repeatable messages. I'm going to write that down. Short, positive, highly repeatable. (laughs) (laughs) That you can build into sort of a machine so you can you can tell stories over and over and over again. And then at the same time. Um, being mindful to um, define your opponent, mm-hmm. very clearly define your opponent. Um, and if you look at political races, that's exactly how political races so are good. won. 
Um, and so there, there are a, a tremendous number of similarities between brands and politicians, for sure. I love that. Defining your opponent. Always. You know, and because for us, I think, you know, I think about this a lot with the sauces. There isn't really an, a brand that's doing what we're doing. But, but your opponent doesn't need to be a brand. No, our opponent yeah. is eating out. Our mm -hmm. opponent is, in some cases, a meal kit or, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so it, I, I would actually broaden it out. Yeah. Um, your opponent's time, um, right? So see, well, well, thank you. We can stop the <laughs> podcast now. But we we and think about that's enough for today. We think about right. foils all day long, right? We call right. them foils. So, you know, your foil, the sauce is foil. When you look at, um, I was looking at the ingredient list the mm -hmm. other day to a couple of them, and that's what was most impressive to me, right? Yeah. You you grow up. I grew up eating. Um, I grew up. I have awesome parents. So, yeah. No, um, they'll forgive you. I, I grew up eating kind of the processed starch product yep. that came on the side of it, you know, and I remember when the couscous came out, the flavored <laughs> couscous, that was a huge moment yeah, in our family. Yeah, it had like the flecks of green yeah. in it. That was exciting. Um, and you comp the, the, the kind of shelf stabilizing products and those things versus what you guys are selling. Yeah. Um, and you're doing it in a way that saves people a massive amount of time. Yep. Um, both going out and shopping and then processing all the ingredients totally. or cooking them. And then clean up. Yeah. And then the fact that it's so versatile is to me also a mechanism that saves time. Okay. Well, <laughs> awesome. On that note, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and you'll teach me everything I need to know about branding myself and my Sounds sauces. Good. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. I'm back with Jesse Darris, founder and CEO of Darris, a full-service brand strategy and communications agency firm. So we were just talking about knowing your opponent. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not the same as knowing your competition, which Correct. is a good thing that you clarified for me. Um, and to that, I guess, going down now that road, the whole brand story idea. Like I think my biggest problem with the sauces is that they do so many things mm -hmm. and they solve for several different problems. And that's been the problem with Havens. I mean, I first yeah. talked to you about Havens. We do so many things. This is like, I repeat this a lot that I get tongue tied a lot mm -hmm. those, you know, what you say? Positive, Short, positive, highly repeatable. Highly repeatable. Yeah. I can't be short. I can be positive, 
but highly repeatable gets a little challenging, but short is, is the tough one for me. I don't think it's, I, I, I don't see it. I mean, I, I think as long, I think sometimes it's hard when it's yours in the right. same way that it would be hard if it was mine to make it short. Cause it's, you're no, part, your website's like genius. You're part of it. Our website has not existed. I think your website is genius. Cause <laughs> I, all I'm like, is they're very, whatever they do, they're awesome at. They're not, our, that's you know, the new and improved website with great. information on it. That, that was a, our our team actually forced me to make it more robust. It was just a splash page before. And now it's got two job descriptions yeah. and like a sentence. <laughs> you know, if people know us, they'll find us. It's well, just that's kind of that, right. Yeah. It's very cool. But I, I think, again, to go back, you know, I think what you guys need to do, and I think you've yeah. done this to, to some extent, is to build out a hierarchy. Yeah, yes. That's um, what I wanted to ask you about. You know, there's a there's a reason the business exists in the first place, right? right? There was a kernel of an idea that formed in your head about why you were doing this in the first place. Yes. Right? And that should be your brand's promise. It should be the thing that sits on top. We call it the lens. Um, and then, you know, everything else beneath it is just how you uh, how you follow through on that brand promise in specific order. Right. And, right. And, and I do think, I mean, if I was looking at what you guys are doing, um, I would be thinking way past sauce. Yeah. Um, we were told that. Yeah. I mean, that's the fun thing. When you start something new, the first thing people say are like, what's next? Yeah, <laughs> like, what? wait, I just kind of wanted to get this thing going. But yes. But product iteration for the sake of product iteration is sort of useless. Right. The point is that if you were going to um, build a brand that had a specific brand promise. Right. Like making cooking easier. Yeah. So if it was that it was that it was easier and faster mm-hmm. that the ingredients were always a certain type of ingredient mm-hmm. right five ingredients or less or whatever right. you want to call it um and that there was something else i mean from a third perspective you could definitely put convenience in there if yep. if you want to deliver to your door however you want to right. think about it but the point being that whatever products you end up developing mm-hmm. that those products fulfill those right. promises in order so going back to the word hierarchy because mm-hmm. I've heard about it on packaging, right? That there should be a hierarchy of ideas, like the most important thing should be the biggest or something like that. I don't really understand it 100%. My guess is that my packaging doesn't necessarily hit the hierarchy rules exactly right. But is that a concept that goes beyond the actual packaging it sounds like what you just said is that it does it sounds like when we speak about it in any way or put it out there in any way that there should be sort of like you want this to go across and then these following things a little bit well i think all communications is are integrated right so it doesn't matter if it's on your label on your social and your in your earned you know experiential or physical um, retail shelving it doesn't really matter um everything is a customer touch point yep. every single thing um and again when when we talk about um, you know, uh, highly repeatable, we mean that people as consumers need to see something six, seven, eight, nine, ten times mm-hmm. for it to sink to in. Click. Women less than men because they're smarter. Yes. Thank um, you for acknowledging that, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good wife. I have a terrific wife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a good cousin. She's okay too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's a brand story? I mean, to me, a brand story um, should be an outgrowth of its promise. Okay. Right? So, there are different brands that have different types of stories. Um, certain brands have founding stories. Um, they offer a, com- a compelling founding story because that's organically what they offer. You can't force them. The guy who slept on the couch yeah, story? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and then other brands 
or their their founding story and and is is less relevant, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not as cool of a story. Um, and so a brand story uh, evolves around the product, right? Um, or it evolves around um, a personal experience or something else, right. or it evolves around fairness, right? Um, we tend to say that. Um, you know, at Darius, that, that brands are either issue brands or price brands. Okay, can you explain that? Yeah, that, that brands are either, um, uh, they're filling some version of an information delta between uh, uh, what consumers think is true and what is actually true. Okay, um, so well, can you give me an example? Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my wife's brand, I think, is a terrific issue brand. I agree. Um, you know, uh, Jordana launched uh, Lola a few years ago. It's it's 100% organic cotton tampons, but it's not a tampon brand. It's a it's a feminine reproductive health brand. Yes. Um, and <laughs> I have to get that right. Or I know, like Casper isn't a mattress brand. It's a sleep <laughs> brand. We get yeah. it right. And I remember when Jordy was doing uh, all sorts of customer research, which basically meant talking to friends and friends of friends as she was starting to think about the idea. And there was a huge delta between what women thought was in that product versus what was in that right. product. Um, when she was asking uh, people, nine out of 10 thought those products were made of cotton when they weren't. Right, wow. Um, they were made of synthetics, um, largely. Um, and that's an information delta. And once they found out that it wasn't made of cotton, it, they were disappointed. Right. And the companies you can tell sort of knew they'd be disappointed because they weren't listing the ingredients on the right. box. Yeah. It's a classic delta between what people think and what's real. So is there is so it's and so is it pretty binary in the sense that it's either an issue No, I mean some some influence. brands are both. I mean, uh, you know, I think Everlane's a pretty terrific uh, example of of well, no, they're both, right? right. Uh, you know, Michael created this incredible concept um, called radical transparency. Yep. Um, and radical transparency is just the promise to be honest with consumers right. about where the products are made, about the pricing structure of the products. Right. Um, and I mean, I guess that, right, taking out that sort of, I mean, I feel like what they had written on the wall was like just taking out a lot of steps in between. Yeah. I mean, everybody takes the, the middleman out of the right. equation, but the other part of it is, so their issue is transparency and being mm-hmm. honest about manufacturing and price, but they also are offering products at a terrific price. Right. Right. How many places sell Japanese denim for $68? Right. It doesn't exist. Right. Um, and so they're a really good example of being both. But I do believe that you, you should fundamentally be one. Right. Or the other or both. Right. Got it. Okay. Very cool. And I think, you know, going back to us again, because I like to do that. Yeah. Um, I think part of what gets me a little confused is that, you know, our promise, even though it's sort of the same, right? We're going to mm-hmm. make cooking easier and more fun and more creative. We'll tell that story to a 25-year-old in a different way than a 32-year-old new parent or a single dad, right? Like, they come out a little bit differently depending on the audience. Maybe. Or not. I, I mean, I, I just... So I, I'm not sure that the message is, uh, is selfish enough. So I, t- I tend to believe that all consumers are self-interested. Okay. And, they sh- and they should be. Yeah, and well, not in a bad right. way. Yeah. They want to understand what's in it for them. So you can tell them the most compelling story in the world about ingredients or manufacturing or all of these other things. But if there isn't some specific compelling reason that it helps them, they're less inclined to purchase it. But for example, mm-hmm. like when we talk to the younger people that work at Havens, the thing that excites them the most about cooking with the sauces, the easy convenient piece is almost secondary to them because everything is kind of easy and convenient to them. It's this global flavor, right? They don't, they don't get to play with lemongrass. But those are the people that work at Havens. Well, yeah. So So they might be slightly (laughs) self-selecting. Right. That's true. Right. So, and why don't they get to work with lemongrass? 
Well, because it's a hard ingredient to work, right? So you're saying it actually does come back to the same thing. I personally think you can find some specific and incredibly simple thread through just about every type of consumer. This is so good. And so, again, like, you know, I think what they're saying is, yeah, they get to work with an exotic ingredient. um, And that's partly that they don't want to, like, lemongrass is difficult to find. It's difficult to break down. Yes. It's difficult to cook with. Yep. Um, and it takes time. Right. So it's not, it's, so it's one step away. So the global flavors are exciting to them because it makes them feel adventurous. But what it really is, is that we make the global flavors easier. Yeah. They're discoverable pretty right. easily. Got but, it. but again, you know, yeah, that's to me, the hierarchy would be that it's, it's easy or simple. Mm-hmm. Um, it would go back to the ingredients again. Right. Um, and then maybe if, again, the third bullet's the thing that I would struggle with because I would want to think about like what, why that existed. A lot of times that drives your content. Um, so for me, it would be, you know, maybe discovery is that thing. Right. You know, because I, I would feel like somebody would, you know, I would probably feel the same about discovering an ingredient like lemongrass as anybody else. I'd love to know afterwards how to cook with it. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's so cool. Um so a lot of, you know, I think a lot of companies like ours, especially when they're in the first sort of stages, they're really, really busy. Like we're, we're really busy, you know, like we're all doing every single job. Yeah, We're in the Chobani incubator. I think you know <laughs> yeah. that And there's like 20 guys on the procurement team. And we looked at each other cause like we have like a half a person, you know, like cause it was, you know, so, and again, they're a $4 billion company, yeah. so it makes sense that they have 20 people, but you know what I mean? Yep. Um, so it's hard for us to sort of sit down and, and think about, you know, these questions to ask and what our consumers, you know, w- how do we communicate with them and what do we do for them? And, you know, are there just some simple questions that we should all be asking ourselves early on? that you can sort of tell us to do before the bus is going down the highway at 80 miles an hour? I think the first thing to understand is that the bus is always going to be going 80. Forever. Forever. Okay. Um, When we help launch businesses, we often tell founders that the easiest thing they'll ever do is launch the business. (laughs) And they look at us like we're insane. Right. So it's slow down, pace yourself, because it's the beginning, not the end. Right. Um, and we tell them to, you know, build out the hierarchy so you could build the engine, right? right? And you could build the machine that turns out these ideas, um, the creative machine. Um, the creative machine should function through a bunch of different things, whether it's, again, if it's product and product iteration, and that's what you can do, terrific, and you've planned some of it out. Um, if it's physical manifestation of brand, whether for a brand like yours, it's actually demo or, right. or using the Haven space for some specific things, yep. whether it's other types of partnerships and collaborations that would help you find scale, whether that's a retail collaboration or whether it's chef driven or whether it's brand driven, right. whatever else it could possibly be. Um, uh, the point is, I, I you know, I, I, I just think it's, you're never going to stop and be able to slow down. And so I think what you have to do is make sure that you are planning, right? Make sure that, uh, uh, that people understand that brand and telling brand story is among the most important things you'll do as you yes. scale the business. And you need to focus strategic energy yeah. on figuring out what those stories are going to be. I mean, it's the majority of my yeah. energy, you know, I, I mean, it has been for a while, but I think even more so with a consumer branded product or packaged good or you know whatever oh yeah simply because you know it's easier 
when people come to Havens, they get what it is. But now I'm going into people's houses that have never heard of Havens Kitchen. I mean, it's weird to have a product that's in people's refrigerators and they don't know that there's a cooking school. It's pretty wonderful. Yeah, no, it's really, it's cool. It just, I have to think about brand a little differently. I wasn't even sure whether or not to put on the package we're a cooking school hmm. at the beginning. You know, we do. Um, I think it's kind of great. Yeah. I, so the fact that you're headquartered in New York is also probably helpful. Yeah, um, that's, I heard that too. <laughs> and and so like, because what you just said, I'm thinking about like, okay, so if I'm, if I'm drawing this out for a new founder, I'm making a pie chart mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, okay, there's some experiential marketing, there's some co-branding, there's some press, yes. presumably, there's a digital strategy. There most likely media. is, depending on the type of business it is. Right. I mean, I, I would separate... Um, you know, earn social, the social mm -hmm. you do in order to attract customers from paid and acquisition. So um, paid just meaning like sponsored posts? Yeah, or? sponsored posts, um, uh, um, affiliate f fees. I mean, there's a million right. different versions of this at this point, um, whether it's, you know, spending money on Instagram or Facebook or right. a million other channels. Um, I think that's one part of it. I mean, there are a lot of others at this point. So I got advice and I'm curious to see if you agree with it or not. So we are not a direct to consumer no. company, right? We're not selling sauces on, you can't, you know, scroll and buy. Mm -hmm. um, and so someone sort of said to me at some point that Instagram ads for me make no sense that I was thinking of it like, no, but people like that seven or eight times, like people will see it. And then they'll, when they see it, when they're at Whole Foods, or they see it and they're at their supermarket or on Fresh Direct or whatever, then they'll they'll think, oh, I'll buy that. And so I was thinking the Instagram ads sort of create awareness. Her point was Instagram ads should be shoppable, like that it should be, oh, you're making a face. So maybe that's not the case. For I you. tend to agree with you. Okay. Um, I, so it's not to say that Instagram ads shouldn't be actionable. Right, it'd be but there would be no action. Yeah, and but and so it's terrific if they can be. But I also agree with the idea that people need to see your brand in uh, multiple places in multiple form factors. Okay. Right. So people always Ooh, talk about well, people always talk about the power of um, uh, of acquisition marketing and and all these companies that have scaled on Facebook and Instagram. But those same companies are the ones who are doing New York City subway takeovers. So can you just? define acquisition marketing for me uh so the ability to spend a certain amount of money to attract a customer and the math has to work in the sense right. that over a period of time the the amount you spend on the customer has to be less than the lifetime value that you can right. get from that customer it seems to me and maybe this is a very bold negative statement to be making but i feel like there are a lot of companies out there that have a lot of sales <laughs> based on ads and getting first time I mean for us it's velocity right yeah like you don't ring the bell when you get a store to say yes mm -hmm. you don't ring a bell when someone buys the product in the store you ring the bell like when they buy it again yes like that's how I ring the bell but it seems like people on you know when they're paying for a lot of Facebook ads and Instagram ads and they're getting sales and sales and sales but they're spending yeah. so much on those customers. It seems like a recipe for disaster unless somehow it flips around. Definitely could be. I right. mean, I, I think the point is that it's hard to tell until, uh, you know, until, until, you the, tell. Well, until right. the music stops, right? <laughs> right. I, I think we're in a period of time right now where raising money, especially growth capital, is a little bit easier and people are 
Um, From your lips to God's ears, <laughs> Jesse. Right? And people are a little bit more comfortable um, uh, pouring money into things like acquisition with the hope that they'll be able to raise more money behind it. Right. Um, but different founders approach this differently. I mean, different people raise different types of money. The, the point I was trying to make before, yeah. though, because I do think it's an important one, um, is I do think a lot of great brands, brands that people aspire to be like, including mm-hmm. a lot of our clients, do a very large mixture of things as it relates to advertising. Right. So they are online for sure on multiple channels. Um, but they're also doing out of home. They're doing things like wild posting. They're doing subways. They're doing bus shelters. They're doing right. taxi tops. Um, they are doing, they're doing radio, whether it's yep. satellite radio or terrestrial radio. They're doing a lot of different things. So that pie chart needs to be big with a lot of pieces of the pie. I think it has the ability to. And if you're pouring um, too much of your budget into one channel, that's a little bit scary, right. I would assume. And how do you, I mean, so for, for a brand like ours, right? Because I do think... You know, no one's seen sauce like this before. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a huge like consumer education piece, yeah. and which is why I'm so focused on like awareness, awareness, awareness. Um, I don't go on Facebook, so mm-hmm. I don't really know it very well. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does seem like though you should be doing some Facebook ads. Maybe. I mean, my guess is that you guys are going to be doing a mixture of, of social and then really just straight old school right. in-store. Um, yeah. I, and I, I, if I were to look at the business, the business would, would um, you know, to me, most mimic a bunch of be- like the beverage brands. Right. You got to get into the stores. You got to, I mean, you're going to spend a lot of that marketing budget on trial. Yes. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me because you want people to taste the product and I it's know. hard to taste it through the, through the lens. No, it's really, and it's interesting too, because um, a lot of the beverage brands that I know have stopped doing as much demoing in stores and have just started handing out bottles at races and, yeah you know, festivals and things like that. And we're always like, if we could just hand, <laughs> can we go to, you know, like whatever, I don't even, I don't know. even know. Go to like, Coachella exactly, and hand out lemongrass. Hand, yeah. hand out some chimney, you know, and be like, just drink, the, you know. Um, so yeah, we're trying to figure out what is the best way. Cause even the demos are a little challenging because we yeah. need to kind of cook a little bit. We don't want to just, you know, have them as a dip, even though, that's fine. I mean, I mean, it really is fine. I, I would probably make the case that the stuff tastes so good raw, how yeah. great would it taste cooked? Right. Um, and you could show off the versatility of it maybe through some of the online stuff and show off the simplicity of it in person. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But, the, and again, I mean, I, I could sit down and game out like 10 or 15 different types of opportunities. I know, I'm sure that you could. But the, um, you know, I, I think the point is that the product lends itself to be tried in person. Right. Um, no, and the larger point, not for our product, but really the reason why I'm asking the yeah. question isn't just for us. It is for, because the, you know, four or 5,000 people that listen to this, mm-hmm. I'm my guess, and you can tell me on Instagram, my guess is the majority of you are founders or starting your own things. So this is really helpful because there are so many options in there and, yeah. and, you really don't know what's best for your brand until I guess you've tried a bunch of things and you somehow measure the return on each thing. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky measuring the return on things. Well, it changes too. So again, and I'm not an acquisition expert, so I don't want to pretend to be one, but from watching our brands, different channels work at different times, different types of creative work at different times. It's a lot of testing. It's a lot of iterating. It's a lot of changing. Um, and it's having smart people think about it consistently. Which leads me to um, hiring. Mm-hmm. Because, so, you know, you and I have talked about this. We've yeah. never had 
PR. We've never, you know, I had someone help me with my cookbook for a couple mm-hmm. months because she's great and we got along. Um, but basically, it seems to me like it's starting to be time. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the question is, what am I looking for? Am I looking for? Am I looking for someone in house? Am I looking for an agency? If I'm looking for an agency, what are some questions I should be asking them? What are some red flags? You know, I don't need to be like, I I use this example a lot and I don't mean it to be negative, but like what's in my bag, you know, little blurb in a women's magazine isn't going to really do much. I don't think for my business. Right. So what are some things I should be looking for and how should I think about it? I mean, the in-house versus agency thing is, is... And do I need it? Do we all need it? I mean, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think every brand could use earned. Um, yeah. And I think that what you're talking about before was product placement. And product placement without kind of deeper storytelling um, isn't useless, but it's not nearly as helpful. Um, it's the combination of the two, right? The the placement driving awareness and having eyeballs see it over and over and over again, and then the deeper storytelling um, being hopefully more you know acquisitive for the brand. Um, the two combined are pretty powerful as it relates to what you want to do. You know, I, I don't know the right answer is the actual right. answer. I if you can find somebody who's terrific, who's a jack of all trades, who you think can grow with you, I think that would be terrific in house. Um, I but think they'd you have might, to be good at. Yeah, they'd have to understand digital. They'd have to understand like marketing. They'd have to understand PR. Like, I think at this point all... in your scale, you'd be chasing a bit of a unicorn. Yeah. Um, I think an agency is probably a more flexible choice, um, and probably a little bit easier from a plug and play perspective. Right. Um, the things I would be looking at, mm-hmm. um, not to discount the founder, but the founder doesn't really matter, right? It's it's totally. what it's what the engine is that they've built. You mean of the agency? Of the agency, right. yeah. So, so how do you how do you test for that? How do you look at that? You ask to spend time with the people who would be working on the brand. Oh. Um, I mean, put simply, right? You're going to see really quickly if you start to meet the entire team, if they've hired smart people and if those people speak your language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that's been most powerful about our experience is that when we started the agency, the idea, like the core idea of the business was to hire great people and keep them as long as possible. Right. Because we don't have any cogs. Right. Our product is people and it's, right. it's our process. And so we figured that if folks spent more time with us, learned our way in a, in a, in a more fluid way um, and could replicate it and evolve it because a lot of them are smarter than us, um, that we would be better. That's um, cool. And I do think the most important thing is, is spending time with the people who would actually be doing the work. That's such a great, I don't think anyone thinks to do that. I don't think we think we can. Well, you know? it's funny when people come in and meet with us and they're like, well, how much time are you going to spend on the business? And I say, well, none. Right. Literally none. None. Um, like I might come to a meeting or two at the beginning and I might spend some time and I'll spend some time behind the scenes with our guys. Right. But the team knows exactly what it's doing. They've been working together for so long and et cetera. And just see if you like them. Right. Um, no, that's so smart. That's so helpful. What about, this was a question I had, like, what about if we aren't available nationally, but, and is it a bad idea to have national media when people can't, again, if it's not actionable, right? Like it's hard for me to find like local media. Yeah. There's a push and pull. I mean, I like to think if you're in more than a handful of markets and those markets are major DMAs, then you can do national. Right. Um, and then it's helpful overall for the long term of the business. And DMA. Oh, uh, like a media market. Sorry. 
Got it. D-M. Yeah. I actually don't even know what the acronym stands for. (laughs) I just... It just means the media market. No, it's good to know. Um, All right. Well, we have a couple minutes left, so I just want to ask you the most fun you've had since you started this whole shebang. The most fun I've had since I started. Like, what was like a, (gasps) this is really fun moment? I think I... I mean, it's a total cop-out. I... I have a, I think I have a pretty severe case of undiagnosed ADD. Yeah. Um, not really. I no, mean, I don't want to diminish I it. I think a lot of us do. I, um, I, I love being able to learn. Yeah. Um, and just spending time with really, really smart people. Me too. Um, That's why you're on. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's true. I think it's the key to life. You know, people come in to meet and they think I'm like saying something interesting to them, but I'm actually just learning yeah. from them. And that is actually quite fun for me in it's, a nerdy, nerdy way. No, I don't think it's nerdy at all. I think the the people that are having the most fun doing this are like half kind of theory geeks and mm. half super like in the weeds practical, yeah. you know, and we kind of flip flop from both. So we're thinking about like these macro things and then we're like really in the dirt of it and we go kind of back and forth. Yeah. You know, I think that's and learning from people and a lot of people are just really experienced and that's yeah. really fun too. And I'm also consistently surprised at the, um, the unconnected learnings, mm-hmm. right? So if I learn something about an industry that literally has nothing to do with anything yep. that I'm doing, um, you know, I, it could be about an old school retail brand and I might find it fascinating for one of our young guys. Totally. Um, there's a lot of cross pollination. That that's awesome. Would you ever write a book at the end? Yeah. Do you have any title working titles in your brain or chapter ideas? No, I do, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to change over time. Well, what would be the basic thesis? I actually have no idea. I mean, I've lived <laughs> such a, I mean, for me right now, I've lived such a serendipitous life um, and gotten to do, I mean, I'm 38 years old, yeah. so I've gotten to do so many things that are, that were, have been amazing. Um, I'm quite excited about what comes next, but yeah. that, you know, the idea of going, um, from politics um, to this and a bunch of the stuff that happened in between um, is just sort of interesting. So I'm sure there's lessons in it. I, yeah. I don't know what they are yet. I'm not going to pretend to be smart enough. And the older I get, the dumber I realize I am. Totally. Yeah. All right. So then on the final note, what is the one mistake that you would like to tell companies like mine to avoid? The one mistake. Or a few. But one that you see that we do that you just wish we wouldn't do. Um, I, I think the planning thing is a really big thing. I, I, I don't necessarily think that enough companies stop um, and have an honest conversation with themselves about what they're actually able to do in the time that they have to do it mm-hmm. um, and aren't setting up this sort of marketing machine to yep. succeed. You can hire all the best people in the world. You can hire all the best agencies in the world. Um, if you are uh, not giving them things to work with or not helping them give you things to work with, yep. you're just going to stand in place. Awesome. Well, here's to not standing in place. <laughs> um, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. I could talk to her, like for another hour or ask about another hour's worth of questions, <laughs> and I feel like I got a really good chunk of advice. So well, thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, I know. It was great. And Matt, thank you for engineering like the engineering star you are. And I've always listened. Thanks, Matt. I wanted to thank Matt too. <laughs> but you thank him every time. I so. do. I do. Because, you know, without Matt, there's no Record, podcast. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and Maddie, thanks for doing your social. 
And uh, we'll see you next time on In the Sauce. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.